0: Hey, good morning, church. Once again, welcome to all of you. I'm Greg Paris. So thrilled that you're here this morning with us in worship. We are completing a series on wisdom for the journey. You know, wisdom is the is the intersection of our experiences and our knowledge applied to seasons and decisions, choices in our life that bring honor to God if we're a wise person. And I hope it's been meaningful to you. Today I want to talk about the youngest among us, millennials and younger, post-millennials, and consider their unique worldview and how those of us who are older can comprehend better that worldview that millennials have. And then for all of us, the challenge to encourage one another toward honorable living before God and the expansion of his kingdom. I've chosen as our text this morning from the Old Testament book of Ruth, And I'm going to read from the first chapter, the first five verses there. For many of you, this will be a familiar story. For others of you, maybe a new story. But we'll start there as we uh, embark on this important subject of wisdom for the journey. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ruth. If not, we'll project the words. Our custom is to stand, to hear God's word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, let's stop right there for a moment and define terms. We all know Bethlehem, right? That ring of bell? There's a real famous guy named Jesus who was born there. Bethlehem, actually from the literal meaning of the word in the Hebrew, it means the house of bread. Bet means house, lehem means of bread. So the house of bread in Judah, the region of Judah, and Judah means praise. So here's a family, they are from the house of bread in the land of praise, and they go to the place called Moab because of famine. Moab, literally translated, means lazy and idle. So they move from the house of bread in the land of praise to the land of lazy. (laughs) Pick it up. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, that's not Oprah, Orpah, (laughs) and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, we know this is the beginning of this story where Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, head back to the land of praise. And they meet a guy named Boaz, and the rest is history. It's a great, great story. But the point I want to bring to you today is that people have left Bethlehem, the land of bread, the land of praise. And they've gone to the land of idleness and laziness. God inspires today through his word. You may be seated. Thank you. We have a stated value here at Union Chapel that we want to be effective in reaching, for Jesus' sake, each unique generation. So all the age groups, we like to have them covered. Today I want to talk about millennials and younger people, post-millennials. Here's the challenge. Those of us who are older, from Generation X, the baby boomers, my generation, the builder generation, the World War II generation... We all have a particular worldview, and millennials—those who are born between 1984 and to the current time—these are people now. Millennials, you know, we say millennials, we think they're very young, but actually, some of the millennials are starting to get toward 40 years old. Hate to bring that up for some of you who are getting close to 40. And 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 so we have millennials and post millennials, and there's a very very distinct difference between these generations. The challenge then we have is understanding each other so that we can be relevant in each generation's lives, cross-pollinate and encourage one another. We now live in a culture that under the influence of millennials an emerging generation that is obsessed with image. When I'm with people my age, a little bit older, a little bit younger, they want information. We like to talk about facts. We want to know what each other knows. But the millennials are different and post-millennials. These are folks who came of age right at the turn of the millennium. That's why they're called millennials. So so this this is a coming of age that's not on a decade, not on a century, but on a millennium. Very interesting and unique moment in history. Their world is different from any generation before them as a result of that. They have unique characteristics and are very difficult to understand for those of us who are older. So millennials and younger are very hard for people older to comprehend. (laughs) This is because they came into adulthood in a totally different world than their parents or their grandparents. They, millennials and younger, are image-driven. My generation, as I mentioned, wants information. We want words. We want facts. Millennials want images. So when I run into a millennial, hang out with a millennial, the first thing they want from me is a picture. I Want to take a selfie. Hey, hold still pastor, I want to take your picture. Do you want to know like anything else about me or what I know or how I've come to be who I am? No, just need your picture. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So you see selfies being taken all over the world by millennials and famous people. And it's obvious that the young person is more interested in capturing the image than they are of actually interacting with the famous person. They will actually pass on the person just to have the image. So you open up these Instagram uh, accounts and and you say, look who I was with, although I didn't find out one thing about their success or while I was with them, don't know anything about them, but I got their picture. And so it's image-driven. Now let me add this caveat. This is very important for you to hear. By no fault of their own, millennials, post-millennials, by no fault of their own, rather, as the result of what has happened to them, millennials have a particular profile in the world, a particular way to go through the world, a worldview. I want to just put this on the screen because this is true of millennials, and I think it's very endearing. I think it's a very positive thing about them. And I'll put it on the screen. It's also in your outline. We live in a time when millennials and parenthetically, the least church-going part of the population, are craving a community of deep friendships bound together by common values with an interest in positively affecting the world. Now leave leave that up there. You see those three values? Deep friendships, common values, desire to make a difference. If you were going to define the church of Jesus Christ those three values would be near the top of the list. Think about it. So instinctively, millennials already have a value system that is in keeping with God's best plan for our lives and the expansion of his fame and and kingdom around the world. And so that's a very good thing. You should know that personally, I like millennials. I, I have a bunch of millennials on our staff here. Now, I confess that I I skim the cream off the top when I hire them, so I always get the best of the best. That's just what I do. And so maybe my view is skewed a bit, but I I found millennials very receptive to coaching and mentoring, which gives me great opportunity in their lives. I've noticed that they're willing to really go for it and go hard for it as long as it's value-centered and mission-driven. If there's a cause out there, and, the, and, and knowing Jesus and expanding the borders of the kingdom is a pretty good cause. And so I've noticed that they're willing to go for it. And if you treat them well, you know, they'll really, they'll really excel. And so I've had nothing but very positive experiences, for the most part, with, with millennials and the, and the youngest among us. So that's my, that's my caveat. That's the foundation. So I want you to hear that because what I'm about to say now is to remind you that I'm not being critical of millennials. I want to simply challenge millennials to make the adjustments necessary to posture yourselves for effective influence in the kingdom of God. Because every generation gets skewed, gets distorted, and has to make adjustments in order to be most effective and to fulfill their potential. Now, here's what social scientists are telling us about the millennials and the post-millennials, Generation Z. These are not my words. Social scientists in our world today, people who study generations and generational trends, these these folks are producing general statements about the millennials. These are not my words, but it's what's coming out of the scientific fields. They are being described as narcissistic, entitled, lazy, unfocused, and difficult to manage narcissistic, entitled, lazy, unfocused, difficult to manage. Social scientists also suggest the millennials have arrived at this point for three primary reasons. Again, these are not my points. This is the research I've done. It's in your outline. I want you to follow along. The reason millennials tend to be, as a general rule, and, of course, that's always dangerous to generalize, I understand, but as a general rule, the scientists tell us that narcissistic, entitled, lazy, unfocused, difficult to manage. And here are the three reasons why. Number one, faulty parenting. Faulty parenting. We have what is essentially an entire generation now that has grown up in a fatherless culture. Fathers either physically absent or emotionally detached from their own children. A fatherless culture. Uh, This explains, frankly, the unfocused and the undisciplined aspects of this generation. Now, it is primarily, hear the word primarily, it is primarily the role of the father in a family to provide order and discipline and structure. That's primarily the role of the father. The primary role of the mother, with all due respect to single moms out there, Doing the best they can, trying to provide order and structure and discipline in your family for your children. But it's the primary, hear the word primary, role of the mother to provide nurture and love. This is, this is the, the design. And so both are essential. That's why a father and a mother are so important to upbringing a child. So the mother's role is to nurture, the father is to provide some structure. So we have children now who have been loved and nurtured well in a fatherless culture, but without the kinds of rules and boundaries and limitations that the order and discipline a father would provide. So we have children who have been raised to believe that they are at the center of the universe and everyone should cater to their needs. And this produces then these terms, narcissistic, entitled, lazy, unfocused, hard to manage. So we have a generation of people who were told, you can have whatever you want, just because you want it. It's the generation of the participation trophy. About a year ago, a picture came to our shared account with our five-year-old grandson at the time, Noah, holding a small participation trophy. It wasn't actually small. A participation trophy following his first basketball league. And, of course, with these shared pictures that come, uh, ask for comments, so I offered one. And I wrote, good job, Noah, big smiley face. And then I said, maybe next year you can do something to earn a trophy. (laughs) Now, you should know Noah is a a little guy, six years old now. You understand, I would would give my life for Noah faster than that and his twin sister, Ellie, because I love them so much, but I'm not playing along with it participation trophies Mm -mm. let me tell you why here's the problem with participation trophies it devalues the efforts of the little girl who came in first it takes away her incentive to try hard because there's no payoff why should I give an effort why should I give maximum exertion why should I really try hard if I'm not going to be rewarded for it if there's no payoff then why should I try And let me tell you what it does to the little boy who came in last. It embarrasses him because he knows darn good and well he doesn't deserve a blue ribbon. So when you give the little girl a blue ribbon for coming in first and you give the little guy a blue ribbon for coming in last, it devalues her effort and it embarrasses him. Faulty parenting thinks that we're making everybody feel good about themselves. No, you're not. You embarrass the little guy. And you continue to embarrass him when you tell him that he's he's achieving at the same level as the person who came in first when he's in last place. Now, if his potential isn't any more than being last in his group, then you encourage him for meeting his potential. But maybe last isn't his potential. Maybe he's got potential to do a lot better. But you're not going to motivate him by embarrassing him. By giving him the same reward that everybody else gets. Mm -hmm. We now have students who are on the honor roll, not because they were honor students, but because their parents went into the school and complained. Yeah, yeah, this happens. Talk to teachers. We have students receiving A's, not because they earned A's, but because the teacher couldn't stand another parent-teacher conference. Parents going in whining and complaining that their kids aren't getting A's when they haven't earned A's. Some of these parents are the ones who put the bumper stickers on. My student is on the a roll. My instinct is always I want to run into the back of those cars. I'm not sure what that is. I need to to see a therapist about that. So now the millenniums and post-millennials are graduating from their homes, which were highly unstructured and sent into the real world. And they're discovering that you can't have whatever you want just because you want it. And they're shocked by it. It's disruptive. You know, it creates people who are dazed and confused. And the reason that it's so confusing to them is because the real world, once they get out into the real world, the real world looks at them and says, We don't care what you want. The real world looks at you and says, I don't give a flip what you want. Don't care. Yeah, but I always I was told I get whatever I want. No, you don't. Not in the real world. So now there are these horrible labels that have been affixed to millennials and the post millennials. Terrible labels. Labels are bad. Here's so one of the labels they get now is they're snowflakes. So fragile, fragile like a snowflake. I can tell you, before God, if I was in the millennial generation, I would spend the rest of my life. Demonstrating to the world that I am not a snowflake. And these poor, sensitive snowflakes, they suffer from microaggressions. People say things and it hurts their feelings. Nobody cares. (laughs) They have to be placed in safe places, safe spaces. For fear that they might hear something that they disagree with. Nobody cares. Not in the real world. See, that's not the real world. That is not the real world. I've been in the real world for a long time. Nobody gives a hoot about what you want, and it's not gonna change. This is this is why socialism is getting traction in our culture. Hey, let's let's consider socialism as a a philosophy and a practice. There's only two. I've said this before. There's only two kinds of people in the world who think socialism is a good idea. One type of person is a person who wants to be in power. People who lust for power like socialism because then they can control everybody else. And the other kind of person who likes socialism is a person who's lazy. So you have people who want power and people who are lazy, who think socialism is a good idea. And it's in perfect keeping with the whole psychology of an entire generation of young people now who suggest that, listen, my parent told me that I can have anything I want just because I want it. And so what I want is I want a free education, I want free health care, I want a free roof over my head, I want a salary that's commensurate with everybody else around me just because I want it. And it's perfectly insane. It's, it's literally out of touch with reality. Like in a, it's an, an alternative, alternative universe. <laughs> it's not real. It doesn't work. It's, it's really interesting. So millennials and post-millennials are ending the real world and realize everything they've been told is a lie, so their world is shattered. One of the evidences of this being dazed and confused, is that 38% of 19 to 34-year-olds are living with their parents. 38%! They're waiting to get married. They're waiting to have children. They're waiting to engage in a meaningful career. If you ask a typical millennial what you want to do with your life, very rarely will you hear a focused, determined, professional track. You might hear something like, I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference in the world. Great, great. That's a great instinct. That's a good, that's a good, good desire. So, so tell me about your job. Oh, well, I, I, I don't think I'm really making an impact in my current job. I, I think I'm going to change jobs. You've only been working at eight days. You need to, like, hang in there a little bit longer. Sort that out. Now, remember, let me, just, let me put this in here because this feels kind of sharp. We are not blaming millennials for these trends. It happened to them, not because of them. And the one reason it has happened is faulty parenting. So don't hear me being critical of millennials. Hear me being critical of parents. Because faulty parenting has caused it. The second thing that the scientists are disclosing to us that are the cause for the psychology of the millennials is social media. Social media. Social media has kept most of the relationships of millennials and post-millennials superficial. There are some folks now who are thinking that the pendulum is about to swing back. In other words, this high interest in social media now is going to swing the other way because millennials are discovering that, you know, I can't find the real community and the real intimacy and connectedness that I want in relationships with social media that I actually need to meet some people face-to-face and get in a relationship with them. And I hope that those predicting the pendulum swinging back now are right. I hope they are. Social media, see, allows me to filter the parts of me I want you to see. Many times you access someone's profile and it isn't even their picture. They're lying about themselves. Social media allows me to choose to show you the best of me. Some of you will be surprised to know that my wife Beth and I actually, about every two weeks or so, will tune in MTV on television. I watch with my wife. I force her to watch MTV for the programming and the commercials, the marketing part, because you can learn about a lot about emerging generations not just with the programming, but with the marketing as well, the the, the commercials. Now, I have to confess to you that watching MTV for me is excruciating. It is very painful for me. Very painful. It's, I, I don't even know where to start. But it's helpful because it gives me a window into the psychology and the worldview of the youngest generations among us. One of the programs that we watch is a program called Catfish. We've seen catfish maybe six or seven times. Uh, Most of you, some of you in the room, if you're a boomer or a builder, you think a catfish is a fish that swims in the bottom of the pond. Uh, Actually, no. Here's the Urban Dictionary definition of catfish. A catfish is someone who pretends to be someone they're not using Facebook or other social media to create false identities particularly to pursue deceptive online romances. Yeah, so so this is an attempt by a person to misrepresent themselves online so that they can attract a relationship online from another person, and they may give you a description of themselves that's completely inaccurate, photos of themselves that aren't themselves and post that online. And so the the whole the TV program Catfish is when a person begins to be suspicious that a person is lying to them on their social page and they've invested months or years in relationship with this person. In some cases, I'm in love with that person. I want to marry that person even though I've never met that person face to face. And so they call these two investigators in this program and then they go find out who this person really is, who's been misrepresenting themselves on social media. And it's like a train wreck. You can't look away. It's, <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. So social media allows you to filter out how others perceive you. There are all kinds of consequences of this. But let me just contrast that with my day. I can talk for boomers. See, back in our day, you actually had to be cool to get people's attention. Now you can just be real average and present yourself as real hot based on what, what you've placed through the filter. Yeah. Uh, I let you know what I want you to know. I let you see what I want you to see. And when we finally meet face-to-face, I have no bil- ability to manage the relationship. It's shocking. It's disappointing to me. So in this program, Catfish, these folks, when they finally meet each other face-to-face, neither one of them are what the other thought they were. And this, all this confusion and dysfunction and pain, it's, it is so painful to watch. It's just so hard. Yeah. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that our brain releases to help control the brain's reward and pleasure centers. Dopamine release occurs in response to things like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. When we get excited about something, our brain releases dopamine and makes us happy and science tells us that this is blamed for addiction. Those of of you and us who have uh, more dopamine production capacity in our brains are the ones who are more highly susceptible to addictive behaviors and patterns, and so our brain is always releasing this stuff. Science is telling us that when we receive a text from our smartphone, dopamine is released into our system. So social media is actually proving to be addictive. There are legal restrictions in our culture, of course, for certain levels of drug use and for drinking alcohol until a certain age. But any seven-year-old can have a smartphone and be on the way to addiction. And what we know from the scientists is that young girls spend more time on social media and therefore are more susceptible to becoming addicted than boys are. Boys are more susceptible to the whole gaming Uh, culture and becoming a gamer and so boys get addicted to the gaming and girls get addicted to the social media and then the scientists take it a step further and say why are girls so actively pursuing social media and they said it's for two reasons as they unpack it with these young girls because these girls want to know who they are and whether or not they have any value so they go looking for who they are and their value and worth in the world through social media And this is another evidence of a fatherless culture, because in God's divine design, the way that he wants young boys and young girls to figure out who they are and what their worth is, is through the words and actions of their fathers. So how in the world should we expect these young people growing up in a fatherless culture to arrive at young adulthood and actually be on balance? know who the heck they are, and whether or not they have value. As I mentioned, the boys are the ones who are more inclined to get attached to, addicted to the gaming world. By the way, just to show, up, show off, I happen to know the best gamer in the world. His nickname is Ninja. Ninja, Ninja now has 16 million followers on his social media platforms. 16 million. When Ninja competes in these gaming competitions, tens of thousands of people from all over the world log on and watch him play these games because he's the best. He's the ninja. I mentioned that just to show off. <laughs> there will be young girls in our worship services this weekend who will be sitting in church, maybe they're doing it right now because they're bored, and they will look at their phone and they will text 10 of their friends and just say hi, hi, to 10 people. Why would they do that? Because one of them may return a text. And every time that little tone sounds that we're all familiar with, the text is coming in on our phone, when they hear that tone, dopamine gets released. Parents say to me, I can't believe this. You know, my, my 12-year-old daughter sent f- f- 5,000 texts last month. I don't even know if, how can anyone has time to do that. It's because they're addicted. If you are a little bit older and you are sitting across from your spouse at dinner and you are texting someone, you have an addiction. Because you are saying, I'm more addicted to this that I am your presence. So, social media is part of the problem. Here's the third thing that social scientists are telling us that create these attitudes and values in the millennials, and that is impatience. Write down the word impatience. Now we come to a fork in the road. We know the next generation has very little patience and feels entitled, catered to, so how should the church respond? Well, one way the church can respond is we can change our music, change our style, shorten our service to 60 minutes, entertain the children down over in the nurseries in the children's area, give them a balloon and a t-shirt when they leave, and that we figure that's it. But that's not it. Here at Union Chapel, we choose to live in the dynamic tension that is created between cultural relevance and doctrinal purity. We want to live in the tension that's created by being sensitive to culture, and yet faithful to the orthodox faith. These are very important principles. When those get out of balance, the influence of the church is lost. So you can be ultimately cool and relevant and hip and completely lose the presence and power of God's blessing. You can be determined to remain orthodox and traditional, and this is, the way, and we're not going to change anything to accommodate culture because God's not called us to, to to become like culture, and you can completely lose an entire generation of people because they're not going to listen to you. So you have to live in the tension. That's what we choose to do. See, so Apostle Paul actually went to Athens, Greece. This is recorded in the in the in the old in the New Testament, and he said. In conclusion, I've become all things to all people so that I might reach a few. So he, he immersed himself in, in Greek culture in order to influence the intellectuals in that culture toward Christ. And so we want to do the same thing. While we are being sensitive to culture, we want to continue to teach the traditions, the doctrines, and the, and the, and the faith once delivered to the saints. The word catechesis, which is a fancy word that says uh, a class to teach doctrines of the church, catechesis, the root word there is echo. And so what we want is the traditions, the doctrines, uh, and the history of the church to echo from generation to generation. So that the youngest among can hear it, hear the echo of the truth. That's our goal. Because what we believe matters. What we believe matters, and who we are becoming matters. In fact, let me put this statement on the screen. Who you are becoming is really the only thing you can control, and what you believe and who you're becoming really matters. Now, let me make the application. There are three things, and this is to the millennials now, and for the rest of us, just an eavesdrop. There are three things that will not happen on demand. I'm sure there's many more than this, but these are three that I want to point out. Three things that will not happen on demand. And again, I know you're an impatient generation. So I'm reminding you that these things won't happen without process, without time. The first is relationships. It takes time to learn the art of trust, manage disappointment, Accepting flaws and loving the other person anyway. To learn the art of compatibility, the discipline of boundaries and limitations. You see, hooking up with people, people you've met online, people whose name you don't even know. I mean, just common sense will tell you that no meaningful relationship is going to endure that way. A casual sex, which has become very popular in our culture today, is a culture completely backwards And needs to be changed. Now you push back with me right now and you say, well, you're not going to change that. Okay, well, how how about if it changes you? How about if you set a different standard? How about if you live more honorably, expecting an enduring relationship built on the right foundations? The second thing you cannot get on demand is success. Millennials finish their college degree and they go, okay, where's my six figure job? Because that's what I want. Remember, nobody cares about you. Nobody. Because out here in the real world, let me tell you what we have we have what we've earned, we have what we have achieved. We have success relative to the opportunities we were given and our willingness to seize those opportunities that's the real world. So you can't have success immediately. You're going to have to grind it out. Success doesn't lie in the destination. Success lies in the journey. Anybody can arrive, but it takes patience and diligence and industriousness and orderliness and self-control on the journey of success. You see, it's a long obedience in one direction. Wow, how how did you get to be so successful? Long obedience in one direction. One day, after another day, after another day. So you want to live today like the person you want to be tomorrow. You do that day in and day out, weekend, in, month in, year in, year out. You live today like the person you want to be tomorrow. And you're going to see yourself growing and developing not only in your own character, but also in the ways that God uses you. And success will find you. If you embrace the disciplines necessary To climb the mountain. This is a sermon on wisdom. Here's the third thing you cannot get on demand and that is you cannot get spiritual maturity, discipleship. The Lord's Prayer asks for daily bread. The Word of God, the bread of God is a daily provision. Man does not live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Jesus said. People get weak and stuck because they haven't had a fresh word from God. They, they leave the house of bread, and they go to Lydl, Lazy and Idle. And they live there for a while. This happens to Christians all the time. They leave the place of praise and the place where the bread is served, the word is given, and they go to Lazy and Idle. Where do you go to church? Well, I used to go to Union Chapel. Why don't you go anymore? Well, you know, I had to go get groceries. Why don't you go anymore? I had to go play golf. Why don't you go anymore? Why well, am you know, my kids had soccer. Why don't you go anymore? So there's, these things happen. And people stop feeding and then they get weak. The Bible actually says, as your days are, so shall your strength be. So how you live your ordinary days will determine whether or not you'll have the capacity you need and the strength you need at the crossroads moments of your life. If you live with integrity today, then when the storm comes, and it will, you'll be ready. But if not, wind will blow you over, blow you away. Happens every day of the world. So you can't have relationships on demand. You can't have success on demand. You can't have spiritual maturity on demand. Maturity will not come to the impatient. Look at this statement on the screen. So we have an impatient culture and a kingdom that only functions in process. Someone then has to stand in front of this generation and remind them that the things of God do not come in microwavable form, not in the click of a button or requesting it from Siri. It doesn't happen that way. Now, listen to me carefully. God promised me things when I was a teenager. I came to faith in Jesus when I was 16, and when I was 17, 18, 19, God told me things, God revealed things to me at that age that I've still not seen. Still haven't come to pass. I've been walking with Jesus almost 50 years. And so I will patiently wait. I will endure day by day until my faith becomes sight. Because I fully expect to see things, God promised me. I haven't seen yet. So it's process. Last statement, we're done. It's, on the, it's in the last paragraph of your notes. I, w- I wanted you to have it so you can reread it if you want to. Millennials and postmillennials, I'm calling you to overcome the notion of virtual relationships that are not real and cannot satisfy. I'm calling you to sign up for the long haul to make a difference in your world and to find success through the journey. And I'm inviting you to the process of discipleship by allowing God to work in you daily, nourishing your soul and bringing you patiently to full maturity. You got the right stuff. You got all the right potential. Now you have to make the adjustments in order to see your potential realized. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen? All right, would you stand up with us? Let's, uh, let's pray a moment. Lord, we thank you for the insight and the wisdom that you impart to us. Thank you, God, that you've promised that if any person lacks wisdom, let him ask of you who will give generously and abundantly so that we might order our steps and order our lives in such a way that brings honor to you and glory to Jesus Christ. So bless us, O oh God. Bless us young and old and everyone in between. Help us to be sensitive to each other and willing to speak into our lives so that we all find fulfillment in the potential you've given us. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray and everyone said amen. Amen.